Hello, you are listening to Gorilla Radio, a companion podcast to Gorilla History. I'm your co-host, Matt Deitch, an organizer, filmmaker, and political educator. Today, I'm putting on my student and teacher hat to discuss macroeconomics, inflation, and political economy. I'm a student at Ideas, an international development economics center uh, located um, in the Global South, and our course on researching into political economy included macroeconomics taught by Prabhapanyak. Our final was for me to give a lecture on uh, one of the topics, so I chose profit inflation to give my lecture on, which will follow this intro. And following that lecture is a short discussion between Prabhapatnyak and my co-evaluator, uh, Dr. Rohit Azad. And after that will be a short discussion with me and Rohit uh, to bring down the concepts of macroeconomics and inflation to layman's terms so that anyone can understand this and what we have to do to combat inflation, uh, something that's been talked about a lot over the last couple of years. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give some uh, preface before I present. Uh, when I'm not given a clear prompt, I write the paper that I want to write. So I wrote about the thoughts that I've been having throughout this class, mostly brought about by the lecture on profit inflation and the subsequent emailing I had with uh, Prabhat and Utsa about just how little this is known and talked about. And so a big part of my paper is based off of the lecture that Utsa gave in 2020 um, on the Bengal famine and how it connects to imperialism. And, uh, the other thing I'll say is that I, in America, I'm, I'm in the U S right now, it's 5 20 AM. Uh, good morning to my fellow online students and good afternoon, uh, in India. But I studied the Holocaust, the German, uh, the Nazi Holocaust for three years, at the collegiate level. World War II is one of the most covered and talked about uh, historical events in the U.S. Uh, other than the the American Revolution, right? And there's so many documentaries. There's it's endless discussion, and I never once learned about uh, the Bengal famine or the ties to India in World War II. And a big thing that I'm passionate about is about connecting the dots for people to show that these aren't individual events, but they're connected oh through all these different things. Uh, the other thing I'll say is that in researching profit inflation and uh, the genocide and famine in Bengal, I wasn't able to find any U.S. scholars uh, that talked about this other than Mike Davis, who recently passed away. So this was also brought about by uh, trying to honor his work and carry it forward as being a U.S. inflation. So saying all that, I will begin. So my, my presentation is called The Killing Legacy of Keynesian Profit Inflation. Bourgeois economist John Maynard Keynes famously retorted in the long run, we are all dead. Yet over half a century after his, after his death, Keynes' ideology continues to dictate global economic relations. Keynes' ideas, written in an attempt to preserve a collapsing empire, maintain colonial relations into our present day in the form of neocolonialism managed in part by the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. Keynes' concept of profit inflation as with most inherited relics of clear-cut colonial extraction, remains a lesser-known economic policy. Profit inflation utilizes the established mechanisms of surplus appropriation and greases the expropriating wheels for maximum velocity, 
crushing the masses in the process. Keynes himself implemented an extreme version of profit inflation from an appointed position of absolute power over the people of India, which resulted in a massive man-made allied forces backed famine in Bengal. If the public understanding of the pro-colonial nature of Keynesian thought, and specifically the understanding of Keynesian profit inflation improves, then workers of the world will be better equipped to understand and respond to the current wave of monopoly-backed profit, cost, and inflation. The current global economy is dominated by capitalist relations, and to live under capitalist relations is to live in constant crisis. In order to understand the ongoing and developing economic crisis that is driving the global market towards recession, we must unpack the living legacy of J.M. Keynes and grasp his policy of profit inflation. There is an obfuscation of responsibility and harm due in part to a limited understanding of inflation. There's a key contradiction in how inflation is commonly understood. Inflation is commonly understood in two ways. Too, one, too much money is chasing too few goods, which leads to an increase in money wages and a rise in prices, referred to as the wage price spiral. And in the same breath, inflation is deemed something bad for everyone by newspapers, pundits, and many economists. How can an increase in wages relative to an increase in prices be bad news for workers? The common understanding of inflation is misleading. The understanding refers to wage inflation, but this is only one type of inflation, while what we are experiencing now is a different form entirely, profit inflation. In the current global economy, an ongoing rise in prices is occurring at a rate far larger than that of the inflation rate, specifically within industries that have a stranglehold on their market share, such as oil and energy, shipping, rental cars, meat processing, and grocers. It's not limited to these, but uh, all, the, all the different industries that also rely on them. All of these are named directly in a U.S. House Subcommittee on Economic and Consumer Policy Report issued on November 4, 2022. I also found it interesting that uh, in researching profit inflation, I could not find a single video on YouTube that explained it. And I couldn't find like there weren't many articles available. Uh, but this House report existed and the representative who issued it uh, was born in New Delhi and had and I, I don't know, like, if that's a coincidence or I don't really believe in coincidences. But I found that interesting that he was the first uh, Indian born member of Congress, and he happens to be the only person in Congress using the term profit inflation explicitly. What's his um, name, by the way? Do you know his name? Uh, Krishna Murthy, I think. Representative Krishna Murthy. He's in. Uh, in Maybe he um, studied at CSP. <laughs> that's exactly what I was. <laughs> uh, the increase in prices is due. Uh, to capitalists using the cover of inflation to artificially raise prices at a rate significantly higher than the current increase in cost. Governments could intervene to increase investment into productive assets, but these assets are primarily owned by individual capitalists. When the Federal Reserve issued trillions of dollars to support the stock market, a majority of that money is going into a small fraction of the population. Around 10% of the U.S. population owns 90% of the stocks. Uh, This money goes directly towards stock buybacks and the continued hoarding of productive assets. This process, process named explicitly by its originator Keynes as profit inflation, brings about the forced transference of pa- purchasing power from ma- the masses of workers into the laps of the capitalist class, as written about in Kay- by Keynes in 1930 and 1940. Um, Keynes initially proposed the idea of profit inflation in general terms as a way to curb the consumption of the masses by weakening the purchasing power of workers through the process of decreasing the value of real wages, a mass tax entirely on the workers, wages utilized to fund the war efforts. Keynes believed workers would be unaware of their weakening buying power using the term coined by U.S. economist Irving Fisher, the money illusion. Keynes, as a British aristocrat himself, remained sympathetic to the British bourgeoisie, claiming they are too few 
so that the burden must be put onto the masses. Keynes conveniently ignored that over half of the productive assets in Britain were in the private hands of the class he deemed too few. Keynes' concept of profit inflation is in direct contradiction with the reputation of Keynes being someone focused on raising incomes and employment. In regards to profit inflation, he's writing explicitly about the opposite outcomes. Keynes, from the appointed position of Chancellor of the Executor, oversaw economic policy in Britain and India uh, for Britain and India during World War II. This fact is left out by Keynes' biographers and has only been brought to public knowledge in recent years by Utsapaniak's pioneering research. Keynes put his theory of profit inflation to practice while personally overseeing the wartime economy of India. Keynes had, pr had proposed implementing the theory of profit inflation in Britain, but faced decisive pushback from trade unions. Similarly, in the U.S. today, where profit inflation is happening at an alarming rate, workers are organizing themselves to push back against rising prices and COVID-related unsafe working conditions. Uh, we're seeing the, the, one of the fastest rise in, in the process of organizing labor that we've seen in a long time. Uh, across the U.S., across sectors that had historically not been uh, pushing towards organized labor. So in India then, like today, a majority of workers are unorganized and work in small-scale production. This policy, unbeknownst to the masses, was forced upon the people of India to pay for a war that they had no say in their participation of when Allied forces landed in Bengal in 1941 following the Japanese bombing of the U.S. military base in Pearl Harbor. That's to help connect the dots for uh, the U.S. audience. Um, Keynes' impact in India constitutes crimes against humanity. He personally oversaw the economic policies across several decades prior to this authoritarian position. Again, a fact left out by uh, of all available biographies. But specifically, the policies he theorized and applied to Bengal during World War II led to the starvation and slaughter of over 3 million people in less than a two-year period from 1943 to 44, all in the name of financing the Allies' war efforts. Any so-called Keynesian success within the British economy comes at the cost of the colonies. India being the biggest, most populated, and most profitable, the burden of the war financing fell entirely on the colonized masses. The process of killing people through starvation to finance the killing of more people, the financing of war, is a classic Keynesian contradiction where he claims to be the bringer of civilization while cannibalizing the workers that build it. Foundational element of capitalism. Keynesian analysis tends to look at capitalism as a closed system, which obfuscates so-called primitive accumulation and the continuing process of ongoing colonial extraction. If we understand the core of Nazi ideology to be the ideology of colonialism and colonial extraction, as proven by Amy Caesar's groundbreaking polemic text, Discourse on Colonialism, then we can understand that Keynesian economics, as witnessed in Bengal, as similar to Third Reich economics. Much like the Nazi economy, Britain's economic model required forced unpaid labor, slavery in another word, in order to sustain global hegemony, especially in the periphery, through means of waging imperial war wars and suppressing socialist and worker rebellions. All capitalist systems require unpaid and forced labor in order to operate. The, the adjustments to this exploitative system put forth by both Keynes and Hitler resulted in millions upon millions of deaths in order to fund a war machine with the hope of conquering the world. Both are praised for their economic prowess while relying on the mechanisms of colonial extraction domestically and abroad. Keynes' ideas harbor the core of Nazi ideology within his own. This supports the claim that the IMF is the continuation of the colonial project and the vanguard of a modern, adapting fascist ideology. The forced loans Keynes took from India to serve the British Empire are the political ancestor to the forced loans brought up by the IMF today. The IMF facilitates profit inflation by enriching the capitalist forces of any, given of any given nation at the expense of the workers, by increasing productive assets in the global south, 
but appropriating the surplus back into the IMF and Global North, we see the continuation of the colonial project. Even after colonialism is pronounced over, the stabilization policies of the IMF are continuation of these colonial mechanisms. When you look at the condition, when you look at the conditionalities of the IMF, these imply there has to be a cut in government service, servant salaries, public employees, and government spending, which create more purchasing power in the non-government workers for primary commodities that will be primarily imported. All of this operates to force the transfer of buying power away from the working class at an expedited rate the core goal of profit inflation. In conclusion to this day, the working class is haunted by the ghost of Keynes. Keynes' rotting carcass reeks within the bloody foundation of the International Monetary Fund and continues to ravage the earth despite a small but growing understanding of the material results of his life's work. The average economic student studies Keynes as a visionary savant, yet, as all defenders of capitalism must, they are made to ignore the machinery of accumulation, specifically colonialism and the crimes against humanity committed by so-called civilizing bodies. Keynes and his contemporary Hitler have only died in body, not spirit. And it is the spirit that the workers of the world must slay in order to free themselves from perpetual crisis. So that's the end of my written lecture. Uh, I want to just thank uh, both uh, professors who are here today because your work was incredibly important to uh, writing this paper, and I wouldn't have been able to do it without you. Uh, especially the recent article about oil prices uh, was really useful. So thank you. Thank you. I, I can't, I need you to know, I don't know if other online students can't hear it, but whenever you clap, it's just silent. So I didn't feel any affirmation. So I could get an affirmation from, uh, I can get an affirmation from questions or comments. Uh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's uh, for me, it's a great one. Uh, I mean, I'm clapping again. You might not hear it, but I'm clapping and I'm seriously clapping. <laughs> just that, uh, I mean, uh, I've just been thinking, I think, uh, maybe this opportunity is making me to think twice about the, uh, a great John Lord Menard Keynes, you know? So, and I think uh, I, I would probably be very glad if I could have a piece of, uh, your presentation. It's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, John. Professors, this is based off of your work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, it is worse. I, mean, I, I don't want to attack Keynes further beyond what you have done. But, but you know, this business of the loan, you, you're talking about the loan. Effectively, what the British government did was to ask the central bank in India to uh, deficit finance but deficit finance against claims held on the British government. Okay. Now, so India was, as you say rightly, India was giving a post loan to the British government. After the war was over, in fact, Keynes argued that, you know, that, that look, I mean, you know, uh, Britain should repudiate this loan because, after all, the war is something which, which was also, you know, I mean, India was also involved in the war. So, 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 so actually, Keynes' position on that was very, very uh, immoral. It's, it's bad. As a matter of fact, conservative economists like Dennis Robertson were so much better of this because this isn't unfair. You said uh, John Robinson's work? or uh, you? No, I mean, listen, uh, I, I think Dennis Robertson's uh, essays have a thing there. You know, I mean, I think one of his essays, uh, he has this collection of essays, uh, utility and all that, and so on, essays in applied economics. I think one of those volumes has an essay 
where he actually says that, you know, that, that it's very unfair to repudiate. So the British government didn't actually repudiate, but there was the wartime inflation. And additionally, there was the depreciation of the pound sterling vis-a-vis the dollar, 1949, which basically meant that the value of that loan really kind of, you know, greatly depreciated. It depreciated vis-a-vis the dollar and additionally depreciated in real terms because the price rise. Yeah, and I also, uh, something that I wasn't able to include, I had I had stuff about the price indexes, the difference between the British price index rises and the Indian uh, price index rises. And uh, something I also wanted to highlight was how this was a loan, not just to the British government, but to the allied forces. And the fact that the negotiations happened just with Britain, even though the US was able to, could have paid off the loan and was the main benefactors of the investment of the war. Um, Yeah, that was that was stuff that I was writing about. And then also the extent of what the IMF loans do uh, and how to use uh, the relationship countries have with the IMF to forecast recessions um, was something that I was looking more into, but that required a lot more research. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, excuse me. For me, I see, I see a sense in your presentation, Matt, from the point of view that. Uh, let me give an example of my country's uh, dilemma, as it were. Uh, in between 1967 and 1970, we had a civil war. And uh, at the aftermath of the civil war, a part of the South that we are conquered in the war, uh, we are asked by the, fed- the federal government to now uh, submit all that they had in the cost of uh, trying to bring about lasting unity. So they submitted all that they had, forcefully submitted all that they had to the to the then federal government, supervised by the British government. And then we now have um, every man who had maybe millions of in Naira then, we are giving just a mere 20 pounds to start a new life. So I, in the course of your presentation, I've been asking myself, what sort of policy is that? I mean, maybe Prof could uh, throw more light on that. Uh, a policy that after the war, you now confiscate all that everyone has and then bring it to the table and then now determine the amount to be given to each individual to start up a new life. So in the course of Matt's presentation, I've just been asking because I think uh, it's a deliberate attempt to increase the power of the of the bourgeoisies or the capitalists as it were, and then uh, de- deliberately make a set of people to be more poor. I don't know if I'm making sense, but I think uh, I've just been thinking. Sorry. Oh, please don't apologize. <laughs> that was interesting. It's now that you've provoked uh, on... Uh, so, I mean, yes, about profit inflation, yes, but to compare, uh, at least in part... Uh, Keynes' ideas with Nazi ideology, that seems, isn't it taking it a bit too extreme? I mean, let's say International Monetary Fund itself. Now, IMF is not uh, exactly what Keynes had imagined. In fact, if anything, it's the opposite of Keynes' own imagination. It was more to do, at least the way he had thought it to be, as an international credit union. For uh, So I'm not denying the other parts of it, but this is perhaps, I don't know, I mean, it seems... For provoking, yes, but Nazi, perhaps not. I I guess in I don't know if this occurs uh, 
in India, but in the U.S., there, whenever the conversation of Nazi Germany comes up, there's this immediate, like, oh, they're the evilest evil, they're not human, they sort of separate their political movement from world political movements, and then there's a praise of the economic policies, right? Like, there's, and that's, that happens, like, all the time. I've heard it all the time, where economic thinkers and students are defending the policies of Nazi Germany as well. It, it, well, it saved the country. And it's, you can't detach uh, what was happening from colonialism, both internal and external. And so that's, that's the first point. And then I hear similar things about Keynes where he gets all this praise as this person who uh, has good economic policies, but the British empire was a messed up place. Right. Like, and that's like, they'll refer to that because in the U S even though, a lot of similarities to the British Empire. Uh, there is this like anti-British sentiment among uh, U.S. people because of how the American Revolution is taught, right? As and it's a way of separating the projects. And so, yeah, and I'm not the first to make this comparison. That's also what made me more comfortable. Is I found a paper from 1994 that was deliberating on this, especially because there's this one instance where like Keynes praised Hitler and called for. Uh, called for like the British government to be more pronounced uh, like the Nazi government. Uh, this is this isn't subtle to me. And then in the same time period, Koletsky wrote a, a well thought out letter and Keynes violent, like violently destroys that and like comes after that. So he's uncritical of the Nazis and very critical of Koletsky. And so I think I think, again, like when we when we're just thinking about things theoretically and understanding the position of power like it's easy to see Keynes as just this cambridge uh academic that has a lot of influence but then when you actually apply it to understanding his positions in the british government as this policymaker and, uh, and driver of policy it's hard not to connect the dots for me on how this is uh more similar than not i'm not saying it's the same but it, there's a lot of similarities and yeah so it it is definitely a provocative I'm provoking something and trying to say this, but but I think it's important not only to to understand how colonialism is central in in both economic models, but also to use this figure of Keynes, who is this like for like is seen as like by some economists as like an Ubermensch. Like it isn't uh it isn't uh I don't think a reach to to assert that and to bring him back to earth and bring also this uh, figure of Hitler down to talk about him in, in more human terms and think about political movements. I also think when analyzing the material relations of the IMF in the world, when we understand neoliberalism as a, as a bringer of the crises that, that can butt out a fascist political movement and see the IMF's relationship in that, it's hard to not see it as a continuation of the project. I see that there's a lot written about how NATO is the continuation of the dream of the third Reich, right? Like it's not, I, I know these are controversial opinions, uh, but they are, they are backed by a lot of analysis. And so I don't know if, I don't know if you're, I, I agree that it's, uh, I'm provoking, but do you think, do you think I've gone too far? <laughs> I, I no, also I used your say, word. I know, but, yeah. but neoliberalism is antithetical to Keynesian. In fact, the entire idea of neoliberalism came as a response to Keynesianism. Look at Friedman. So how would you equate Yes, there are contradictions, internal contradictions in Keynes's. Uh, I mean, I'm not defending his politics, of course. But to say that neoliberalism is the same as Keynesianism and today's, uh, let's say, NATO, I mean, 
maybe confusing too many things. Yes, critical of Keynes, but don't uh, kind of throw the baby with the bath water is all I would say. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is I, I, there is left Keynesianism also, which comes out of the same theory. So, uh, so to put it as if the current world order is what is uh, Keynes's uh, uh, you know legacy is perhaps unfair. I mean, that's not what, in fact, Keynes would be turning in his grave if you say neoliberalism follows from Keynesianism or Keynes' own idea is neoliberal. Okay. I Yeah, I I just found some stuff that referred to the IMF as, as his legacy in a positive sense. So I took that and used it derogatorily. But if that's, if that's incorrect, it's incorrect. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. I think that um, from what Matt had said, history has a big role to play here. And that's because the bigger-than-life image given to Keynes' work is as a result of what other people have done and what other people have um, analyzed and thought of. So there's the person himself and there's his ideas. And his ideas being blown is as a result of people's action and as a result of history. And a lot of things have passed that we are not able to assess. Secondly, his character, his person, his actions are also being influenced by other people at his time. That's my own understanding. So to to some extent, whatever decision he made or whatever actions he made cannot be seen as, um, cannot cannot be isolated from his time. I cannot be isolated from the kind of environment that he had. The same, and that that also affects his ideas because now, when you look at his ideas, it's he 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 came up with ideas, he came up with things, but the way they are being portrayed now is not as a result of his actions. So that also, I think, should be taken into consideration when you are kind of criticizing his work. Thank you. Especially in a sense where most countries like uh, my country, Nigeria, the government is always after borrowing, 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 and borrowing. I mean, uh, some of, some are those of his idea. And then the, 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 the corrupt politicians, as it were, will have to always uh, put Keynesian uh, government intervention in an economy when there is a, when there is a recession or a period of uh, scarcity. But then uh, the the part of maximizing the period of boom and using it, I, I mean, watching uh, the the last World Cup, uh, the the one that just ended the, uh, on Sunday, I was wondering: is this uh, this country is uh, exporting oil? Nigeria is exporting oil. But uh, I mean, come on, here we are, terribly faced with the infrastructural deficit. Uh, you cannot even you cannot even connect to idea properly without trying to hook up from one network to the other, from MTN, Globalcom, Econet, and all that. And yet the network is still having problems. But look at another country that, that, that just concluded the hosting of the best World Cup ever. We are all exporting oil. So I think some of his ideas have been taken out of context, and that is a very big problem. I think it's about time we begin to rethink on some of his ideas and then make uh, 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 solutions that could uh, support what we want to achieve. Thank you. You know, one of the problems is that when it comes to colonial empire, there is really very little to choose between the different metropolitan powers. Because you find, for instance, I mean, the kind of thing that 
Leopold did in Belgium, I mean, in, in, in the Congo, uh, the kind of thing that the German, even the pre-Hitler German did in, in Namibia, and the kind of thing the British did in India, or the French did in, in the, uh, West Africa. You know, they very, very little to choose uh, between the different metropolitan powers in their actions in the colony. Um, I'm just curious because uh, you brought it up. Is would you can you give me examples of left Keynesian thinkers? Are you are would y'all refer to yourselves as that, or is it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm not a left Keynesian thinker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not anti-Keynesian either. <laughs> no, I'm not, and I, I'm not saying that he can't make that in today's context. See, uh, there is something about, let's say, uh, thinking in terms of uh, a socialist world or a socialist order. From here to there, how do you go? Uh, there, you need allies. I mean, yes, a better world, but from here to there, the imagination where you make Keynes as the enemy. Uh, to uh, to go to socialism is going to be a far more difficult task than think in terms of, let's say, welfare state. I mean, that's not socialist, yes. At the same time, it is a, a challenge to neoliberalism. So there you use Keynes. You use Keynes to your advantage. Uh, that does not mean that you are essentially a Keynesian. So, you know, there, there, there needs to be, you know, painting him entirely in black is perhaps, I mean, painting him in a particular color is uh, a very specific one, whereas there are quite a lot of progressive things that come out of that idea. I mean, uh, when you say Kaliski, there is a commonality in a lot of economics that they did, right? And that commonality shows that coming from two very different perspectives, Kaliski coming from a Marxian framework could arrive at, in terms of understanding capitalist system, in very similar ways, and yet have. I mean, Kalisky was, of course, far more political and uh, and, and has hit, uh, his uh, politics in the right uh, place. Uh, at the same time, in terms of policy today, would you say that uh, to challenge neoliberalism, the only idea that one would have is to, you know, a socialist world order? Of course. But how? How do you go from here to there? That incremental struggle is equally important to the long step, let's say, the long, uh, you know, jump that you want to make. Otherwise, that long jump is not possible, in my opinion. I mean, it's it's an imagination, yes. But how do you go from here? Yeah, that's a whole other presentation. <laughs> but that's... Uh, Indeed. <laughs> All those hands that one needs to lose, perhaps, the enemies uh, according to the time that we live in. Yeah, and I, I, and I don't... I'm not throwing away... Keynes uh, entirely. Also, I, I I think I made my I think I made my point a little maybe too aggressively towards the end, but <laughs> it's about but it's about uh, it's about the heart, the core of it being the colonial elements that we need to that we need to throw out. <laughs> is what I was saying. I understand and and deconstruct. And so uh, and on, and on regards to to what must be done. Uh, yeah, that's uh, I'd refer more to Marx, Lenin, Mao. And, all these other thinkers, Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> there's other. There's really good ideas there. <laughs> so, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much uh, for agreeing to do this. Um, you are an important part of the lecture that makes up the other half of this episode. 
So I don't know if you remember my presentation uh, that you were evaluated on profit inflation. Uh, your review of it was that I went uh, perhaps a little too hard on Keynes and uh, and we had a great discussion after. So that's a part of this episode. Um, but I thought it was really important to supplement um, the conversation because that lecture was for a macroeconomics course. Uh, and I wanted to bring this the language down to a point where anyone who's at any level of economic understanding uh, would be able to grasp these concepts that are so popularly uh, spoken about today. So inflation especially has been a huge topic um, over the last couple of years. So that's uh, that's the preface of the conversation. But uh, yeah, if you want to start by introducing yourself or if you have any questions before we begin. No, I, I, I get a sense of what you want to do. I hope uh, we're able to kind of achieve the goal that you have in mind. So let me introduce myself. Uh, I uh, I teach uh, economics at Jawaharlal Nehru University at the Center for Economic Studies and Planning. It's uh, one of the few centers, uh, perhaps globally, where uh, an alternative to what is usually the mainstream economics or the way economics is taught, this happens to be one of the centers where economics is seen differently which uh, is called the heterodox economics, but different streams within the heterodox uh, economics have actually been captured through courses uh, and in terms of teaching. So that's the center where I work. My area of research uh, broadly is in political economy of development, macroeconomics, and off late I've been working on uh, climate change. Thank you for that frame uh, for JNU. Uh, it's really important for our audience uh, because they may not have that context. So I'd like also to just follow that up by asking you, who are the who are some of the giants that uh, that your perspective is on the shoulders of? And uh, I, I love the quote in your Twitter bio, so I just want to read it now. As and what this quote means to you is like part of the beginning of. Uh, the Kolesky quote of the workers spend what they get and the capitalists get what they spend. Kolesky was a, I, I cited him several times in my uh, lecture that's part of this. So just want to speak about him and any other uh, inspirations that you bring into this space as where your perspective comes from on economics. So Kolesky happens to be one such thinker who uh, I'm deeply influenced by it and uh, of what I understand economics uh, as a subject, there is usually you would find, uh, you know, people clubbing uh, Keynes with Kaliski, which is not really fair to Kaliski because A. Kaliski was critical of Keynes's many of his arguments, even though they had similar uh, arguments to make about how capitalism works. But Kaliski was coming at the same problem uh, of, um, you know, how accumulation takes place in, in under capitalism and what kind of a system it is in terms, I mean, the economic stability and all of that, uh, he was coming from a completely different perspective. His training was in Marxism. In fact, he uh, was not formally trained uh, as an economist. So uh, if you look at his writings, it comes from a Marxian understanding of uh, capitalism and, uh, you know, like this whole, those who know, this department schema in Marx. Uh, so Kaliski, in fact, writes uh, like that, whereas Keynes's writings are uh, very rooted in what was 
mainstream economics then uh, and the training also that he had was similar. But there was a radical departure, in my opinion, in Keynes's writing, uh, writings from the mainstream economics. But Kalisky uh, is is far more uh, to the left, so to speak. Uh, I I would say that he he is uh, and should be considered as a, a Marxian economist because he was a Marxist. Number one, number two, he did not see capitalism as a as a system uh, which. Uh, can ever accommodate uh, uh, full employment, even though technically we can show it on paper that it can. Uh, so he was he he, he was uh, quite prescient on that, uh, where he said that there are political aspects of why full employment will not be maintained, even though we can show it in equations or uh, on paper. So he's one of the you know names that. Uh, has influenced that has had a deep impact on me uh, and has attracted me to macroeconomics as a subject. Are there, are there any other influences you want to shout out? Just because, and, fo- and following your Twitter that uh, you, you say you're not that active on, it's one of the things I notice is that, yeah, you do give flowers to a lot of the people who have influenced you. Talk about contemporary, then uh, people in, uh, in, in JNU who have taught I mean, big names uh, like Professor Prabhat Patnaik, Professor Utsa Patnaik, Amit Padri, Professor Jaiti Ghosh, who is now at UMass Amherst, uh, Professor C.P. Chandrasekhar, and many more who have trained us as uh, as economists in our student days. If you look at economists outside uh, this, uh, you know, I mean, this was our immediate group of teachers who taught us. Uh, names outside, uh, particularly heterodox economists that we know uh, in the U.S., for example, uh, Professor Bob Pollin, Jerry Epstein, Jim Crotty, uh, Jim Boyce, uh, they were all, that was the school of heterodox economics at UMass Amherst. And then you had one at the new school uh, uh, where uh, Professor Duncan Foley, Anwar Sheikh, uh, and many others who um, Lance Taylor and so on and so forth. So, so there is a big, uh, let's say, how should I put it, a list of people who have influenced uh, many of us uh, in our work that we have, that we do. But if you go back to, uh, let's say, Cambridge, the old Cambridge, not the one that you have now in Cambridge, which is pretty much mainstream economics, uh, people like. John Robinson, Nicholas Calder, and many others. I think this is the tradition or, or, or the body of literature that they have generated. It's a long list, I know. Is the literature which should actually form a part of, if not the main text, but uh, of teaching, of, of teaching everywhere, because it's a very, very rich tradition, which unfortunately is not taught uh, in, I mean, majority of the departments uh, in economics. Thank you for that great answer. So, yeah, I guess my uh, the final question before we move into theories talk um, is around, uh, because I did my homework, I, I listened to a few of your other interviews that are available online, and people who listen to this might uh, bounce from this to that, uh, and some of your lectures that are available online. And uh, you spoke about in one of 
being raised in a, a conservative household and uh, conservative community. And so just uh, where I, I'm just very curious personally where the intervention was uh, that brought you to develop your own politics, because I think it's I think it's always important to show where people where people's politics develop over time. Uh, me personally, similarly grew up in I'm from the U.S. I'm speaking to you from Florida, very conservative to say the least uh, place. So the development for me over time, I, I was handed a book by an elder. Uh, I was handed uh, Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. And that was uh, where my personal politics started to develop, where I started thinking for myself. And so I just w- I was curious your own position uh, and when this happened, because I think it's a, I think it's important to show people and tell people how this journey occurs, uh, so that we can have more people go on these journeys to to learn and uh, expand their knowledge. So um, I happen to be from a state which you can call uh, perhaps the Florida of India in terms of uh, it endorsing uh, the right wing politics uh, in uh, in India. I happen to be from Bihar. Uh, and I uh, come from the capital city of Bihar, Patna. The social milieu of where I grew up, to give you a context, since most of uh, the listeners would be from the US, is pretty much, I mean, I'm not making a a, a one-to-one comparison, but the kind of racism that you would find in Florida, for example, uh, you would find a similar caste politics uh, in in Bihar control land. They continue to do so. Uh, they control professions. Uh, I mean, they control pretty much uh, everything. The power uh, flows from uh, from from that. Let's say uh, uh, that structure, the caste structure. Uh, so I grew up in such a conservative uh, society. The colony that I mean the the. The area where we lived, uh, I can say currently more than 90% of the people who live in that locality where I'm from are uh, currently uh, right-wing supporters openly. At that point, when I was growing up, perhaps they were not, at least openly not, but now they're uh, all like that. Uh, and and I, I think it comes from their caste position. Uh, this is an assertion uh, in India of uh, the upper caste uh, in the form of the, you know, the, the assertion uh, of uh, the political party, which is ruling uh, of the organization that backs it is uh, essentially the background that I come from. Now, where did it change? It essentially uh, changed when I came to Delhi University. Prior to that, I had no exposure to politics. I mean, in the sense, formal politics. Of course, everybody is political in that sense. Uh, even those who claim to be apolitical, that's also politics. But I got exposure to progressive uh, politics in Delhi University for the first time. Uh, and this was in the context of uh, uh, anti-fee hype movement uh, that was taking place uh, at that point in time because there was PI across colleges in Delhi University, uh, which led to uh, different organizations, student organizations coming together and asking for uh, a rollback of the fee hike. And I found that to be uh, something because uh, of uh, great importance. 
because accessibility in public education, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, it is about uh, the fee structure. Uh, otherwise, it's inaccessible. I mean, if the fees is too high, like private universities, then most of the students would not be able to make it to uh, these public institutions. So at that point, we did not have public uni- uh, private universities in India. But uh, but the fact but it it now in hindsight it seems like the the ground was being prepared and we, we managed to somewhat roll it back. But but the fact that such a movement could be built uh, is how I go uh, drawn into uh, this politics. So it started there. Then when I went to uh, Jawaharlal Nehru University, which uh, 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 happened to be and continues to be uh, the citadel of progressive politics. Uh, that's where I got for the exposure to uh, to this politics, and and that had uh, an impact on reversing many of the ideas that I held prior to that. Thank you so much um, for that answer and insight. I think it's a perfect segue into conversation about inflation, since you spoke about rising. Prices, uh, fees being a big part of your political uh, development. So why, I guess we'll start with just the context of why are people talking about inflation so much uh, over the last couple of years? And uh, I don't know if this is the case in, in India, but at least in the U.S. media, um, the conversations have stalled or have slowed down. Uh, the word is not uh, being mentioned as much uh, publicly, I feel. So if you want to talk about that context today, why why is this word being thrown around so much? Why is it something that we care about right now? Because, uh, I mean, inflation is something which affects people across the board, particularly those whose incomes are not uh, insulated. Because, you know, I mean, if, if, if my income is not indexed to inflation, then you know, uh, I lose uh, the purchasing power, I lose... And I would not have the same claim uh, over goods that I had earlier, not just goods, but everything uh, in that sense. So it affects people whose uh, incomes are not indexed to inflation. Now, there are two sets of people usually under uh, capitalism who uh, are affected by it. One is at the lowest rung of uh, the income scale or wealth scale, which is the workers, particularly workers who are unorganized, or who do, do not have uh, bargaining power, who do not uh, have the space to negotiate for their wages, uh, in which case they just act as a cushion of the system. So they accept, uh, they, have, they, they have to willingly accept uh, whatever is left, so to speak. And then there is another set, which is at the complete opposite end of the political spectrum, which is finance. Uh, And and by finance, I mean uh, that all those who hold financial assets, let's say the shares that we hold or uh, bonds that we hold or any of such financial, uh, you know, term deposits, uh, so on and so forth, all these financial instruments that we hold, um, you would know that most of these financial instruments are not indexed to inflation. So, you know, the income that I get from, uh, let's say, a bond uh, is an 
uh, uh, the return that I get from a bond is something which is, uh, uh, let's say, included in the price of that bond. Or let's not getting into the get into the complexities. Let's just take term deposits, for example. Term deposits have a rate of interest which come with it. Uh, you know, six percent, five percent, whatever that may be. Now that six or seven percent or five percent is essentially a nominal return. So when you uh, when the term deposit comes to an end, you get a certain uh, amount of money which is calculated based on that percentage. Now, during this period, if the inflation has taken place, which is equivalent to, let's say, that rate of return, then you effectively has earned not, you, you have effectively not earned anything. You had $10, let's say, to begin with. If the, you know, a high rate of interest, let's say, uh, of uh, 10% uh, would have uh, given you a dollar at the end of uh, one year, Let's say inflation also happens to be 10%, then effectively that extra dollar doesn't give you anything. So both the unorganized sector workers whose incomes are not indexed to inflation, as well as the exact opposite end of the income spectrum, the big finance capital is also uh, uh, one class which is affected by inflation. So it's, it's paradoxical, uh, actually. But you will always find those who are talking about inflation targeting or, uh, you know, arguing for uh, the central bank to intervene, so on and so forth, never talk about finance capital. They always use the workers as the shield uh, to argue uh, for targeting of inflation because that has political currency. I mean, you can always say and you can sound progressive uh, when you say that, you know, the central bank has to intervene because all these poor people are losing money uh, and hence we would have to uh, raise the interest rates because that is going to then bring the demand in control uh, and will bring inflation down, which is going to benefit these workers. Whereas the real politics is completely different. It has nothing to do with those uh, working people. It is actually to ensure, simply put, ensure the interests of finance capital. So if the nominal rate of interest goes up uh, higher than inflation, it effectively means that you've taken care of, you've indexed the incomes of finance capital because they get the rate of uh, interest as return. You've basically more than indexed it to inflation. So you uh, save the upper class, the class that I was talking about. Finance is what you're trying to save, not the workers at all in, in this whole process of uh, as far as uh, inflation as an issue is concerned, it's obviously because inflation rates have gone up across the world globally. The source of which may not have anything to do with, uh, you know, demand as is being made out to be the case, both uh, in the first world and in the developing country, that this is essentially demand outpacing supply. And that's why you need to control demand to bring inflation down. Whereas the reality is that this inflation is coming uh, in all likelihood uh, and all data shows uh, essentially from the oil uh, prices. So oil prices have gone up uh, and for reasons that everybody uh, knows, the, the, the war on Ukraine has played uh, a very critical role in that in pushing the prices up. And that is a commodity which goes into production of every other commodity in the world. So if oil prices go up, uh, it's obvious that there would be inflation uh, in uh, in the global economy. 
Yeah. So one of the points you just made reminds me of a personal story that happened recently where my cousin hasn't gotten a raise in four or five years. And we were trying to explain uh, that 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 doesn't mean that you're getting the same amount of money, that she's actually making way less money four years into this job uh, than she was previously because of uh, this rate of inflation. And so, yeah, I guess I have two questions uh, that I'll say together and you can answer as in whatever parts you want. But it's uh, how does this rising price of oil, which we know is both connected to uh, the conflict in Ukraine, but also uh, attached to the fact that these oil companies are operate in a monopoly system and they can set their price and raise their price uh, to to match their to overcome the crisis. We know oil companies in the U.S. posted uh, record profits over the last several years. So how is this related to profit inflation specifically? And how is, on the second side of that, relating to your uh, article that you published about how inflation is related to class struggle and class conflict, I think this. I think these go together well. So, so uh, uh, let me answer the second one uh, first about uh, this conflict leading to inflation. And since profit inflation comes as a result of that, uh, I'll answer the first question uh, after that. Let's look at uh, what inflation is. Now, uh, I mean, it's obvious inflation is essentially a rise in prices of commodities that we buy. Commodities could be goods or services uh, that we buy uh, in an economy. Now, prices essentially are in, depending on which commodity you're talking about, but by and large, prices uh, are uh, uh, unlike what we usually do in economics, that these are competitive prices and all of that. We all know prices are essentially a cost plus pricing, which means that if this is the cost of production, the manufacturer puts a profit margin to that and pushes that as the price that the consumers uh, buy that commodity for. So that's why it's called the cost plus pricing. Now, what the, that markup would be or what is the profit margin depends on an, a particular industry. If it's a monopolized industry, as you uh, correctly said, in the case of oil, then the margins would be much higher. So, for example, uh, uh, you know, take the case of an iPhone, the profit margin that iPhone has is is dramatically higher compared to, you know, another commodity. Uh, and that is because, A, the premium that uh, Mac commands in the, the market, and the other is uh, lack of competition. So both these play a role there. Anyway, coming back to then cost, so inflation uh, can take place as a result of any of these factors claiming think of think of um how should i put it let's say let's say if we discuss it in terms of a pie you know you you have a pie which uh, i find the easiest way of explaining inflation to that uh, that you have a pie that you're distributing or uh, between different classes of people so you have let's say workers as a class obviously there is a differentiation within the working class, but let's say broadly to make a uh, you know an abstraction that you have a working class which is making a claim over this pie. Uh, you have uh, finance capital which is making a claim over this pie. So bankers, uh, financiers, 
uh, have a claim. You have capitalists who are making a claim over this pie, which they do through uh, setting up a profit margin. Workers do it through uh, through the wages that they negotiate for. Uh, a business does it through the profit margin. And let's say finance capital does it through the interest rate. So broadly, and there are, I mean, there could be other factors uh, as well. Uh, uh, you know, let's say primary commodity producers uh, that you have, raw materials, which are, if we take the case of the United States, the raw materials that you would buy from outside, uh, they also have a claim over uh, this pie. Now, when the the claims that you have over this pie, if the claims match, match in the sense that I'm claiming uh, one third, the other class is claiming one third, and the third class is also claiming one third, then all of it adds up to one, in which case the there would be stability in terms of prices. But if a class is claiming uh, a share in this pie, which is greater than what can be accommodated by this pie, it is then that it leads to uh, inflation in the system. So that's where conflict comes into the picture. All these discussions about inflation coming from printing of money or from, uh, you know, uh, demand outpacing supply, miss this very simple point. If you understand how prices are formed, you can understand what leads to its rise. And hence, uh, it, it becomes quite easy to see uh, where inflation is coming from. Here, uh, I, I, I just want to stress an additional point that then how does it stop? Let's say if somebody is claiming a higher share, if that share cannot be accommodated, then it should be continuous. I mean, it should lead to a continuous inflation which keeps on increasing over a period of time. Obviously, that does not take place. You have a certain level of inflation or a certain uh, inflation. It may be high, but it's not as if that it goes to infinity uh, as a result of uh, this conflict. And the reason why it does not go to uh, infinity or it explodes is because there is always one or two class in this negotiation, in this sharing of the pie, who do not have the capacity to make a claim uh, in real terms. So they act as the shock absorber of the system. So they take what is left of this pie. So if uh, there are four classes, three classes are claiming a higher share, whatever is left, as a process of this price formation, I have no possibility of claiming a higher share than that. So in the example that you gave where you said uh, your cousin, uh, the fact that she could not negotiate for a higher wage is effectively coming down to the point of what she gets is something she, that she has to accept. She has no agency where she can go and negotiate that if the prices have gone up, my wages should go up. If they do not go up, that essentially means a claim, real claim over the pie, over the US GDP, so to speak, real GDP, real pie, has actually gone down. Exactly the class which accommodates the working people who are the unorganized working people who don't have a union to negotiate, who don't have minimum wages, are the ones who act as the shock absorber uh, of the system. And this becomes particularly uh, 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 I mean this, this this problem gets aggravated when you have uh, uh, profit inflation additional to this which means that uh, you know when I said claim of the uh, of one of the classes increasing now which class is actually 
uh, increasing that claim. It, it matters. It's not the working class which is increasing its claim. Uh, when oil prices go up, it's the oil companies which are increasing their claim over uh, the uh, uh, in the pipe because oil goes into production of every commodity, as I said. So it's the oil shakes of the world. It's the fossil fuel uh, industries which are asking for a higher price uh, in 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 that pie, a higher share. And given the fact that they have the kind of oligopoly that they do. Uh, those prices that they claim uh, hold out, but certain other classes have to just accept that price, that increased price, without a commensurate increase in their income. Uh, this is how this, uh, let's say, the adjustment in the price system effectively takes place. And in the process, leads to profit inflation because the income is shifting away from the working class to the rest of the classes. So in this case, it could be the capitalists. In uh, other instances where the real uh, rates of interest rise uh, could be finance, uh, but uh, capital as a whole gains in the process. Whether it is finance capital or it's business capital, they gain at the cost of the workers whenever there is an income distribution away from the workers uh, in the process of uh, such uh, an inflation. So that's why the name profit inflation the burden of adjustment essentially falls uh, on the working people uh, in an economy and, and globally as well. So depending on where you fall on that scale, where are you on that uh, pecking order, so to speak, depending on that, how much burden you have to take off uh, this adjustment is uh, how the system works in this framework. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important uh, to highlight how who are who are the people who are because it is people and corporations that the corporations that are treated as people in our legal code um, that uh, are pushing profit inflation who it harms uh, because in the economic terms we learn that it uh, is about weakening the bargaining the buying power of working people and what does that actually mean in clear cut terms it means people have less access to food, less access to, to basic services and, uh, and the ability to, to live their lives. And so I think that that's the part of the equation that I feel like when we keep it in economic terms, uh, is, is lost a lot of the time and on the general public. So, yeah, and it sounds like the only way to, to out organize or to organize around inflation or respond to inflation is, uh, is a working class movement is organizing workers uh, wherever they may be, and it seems like also the need to not only uh, organize workers but to out organize a mixture of state and finance uh, interests. Um, is there anything else in this equation that I'm missing? So I, uh, I mean, uh, uh, absolutely. The only way you can insulate uh, the workers from this kind of a system which is rigged in favor of capital is to organize uh, labor uh, against uh, capital. And that also influences the uh, role that the state plays. I mean, the state currently acting on behalf of capital was also a state in, in a phase where uh, it was acting as a welfare state. So the same capitalist uh, state has uh, changed character over the years, depending on the strength of the working class movement itself. With globalization, 
has become more pro-capital. It's not as if that uh, the st- uh, state uh, ever in a capitalist system would be pro-labor. At the same time, you can negotiate. I mean, that negotiation would depend on uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 collective of uh, the workers, the strength of the workers' movement, alliances across workers uh, globally. Uh, because you know, capital has become more centralized globally, but workers' movements have mostly been not mostly have actually been national. Uh, in fact, so much so that capital actually pits the working people of one country against the other. I mean, for uh, think of the campaign that uh, Trump had, had launched in making America great again. Uh, I mean, it's 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 paradoxical that a person like Trump, who is out and out uh, a capitalist, was speaking a language as if he was defending the working people of the United States or the working class of the United States, uh, which is exactly the opposite. And the same holds true for all big capital across different countries. They are pitting workers of one nation against the other. And in the process, in in this pitting one against the other, they are the ones who gain in the process uh, through uh, this distribution of of, capital. income away uh, from the workers and in favor of capital. Let's say if the opposite were to happen, I mean, just to do a counterfactual, that uh, workers did not take this, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, shift of income from wages to uh, to capital, from wages to profits, lying down and were to fight back in terms of ensuring at least their real incomes to stay constant. In such an economy, you would actually find, you know, prices uh, exploding through the roof uh, uh, if the if the capitalists do not back down. So it is actually quite literally uh, that class conflict, uh, uh, which is the second piece of uh, any influence. In such a the point that you made, organizing workers. Organizing workers also influences state action. You can actually force the state into um, uh, I- I- into policies which control prices, which put the burden of adjustment on the capitalist and not on the workers. It can happen. I mean, price controls are essentially of that nature where you say that there is a cap to your markup, there is a cap to your profit margin. You cannot push it down to the workers. They get their income stay uh, uh, intact. Uh, you can't increase prices if the costs go up, uh, especially in conditions of inflationary situations, which essentially means that the state itself is changing, or is uh, uh, at least even in the uh, in, uh, in 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 the short run uh, is uh, essentially answering to the the demands that. Uh, the workers' movement uh, would be making. So, yeah, that that would be my response. Thank you. No, I think uh, I think we covered everything that I uh, that I had planned. I'm looking through my questions now. Are there any other points on inflation or profit inflation that you think someone who is just learning about this for the first time needs to for sure grasp or understand in uh, engaging with the current discourse or the current economy? About profit inflation, I think, uh, I mean, j- 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 just to uh, put it very simply, 
uh, think of, uh, I mean, those who are not exposed to uh, this kind of, uh, of uh, literature and, and, and training in economics, think of two classes, simply workers and capitalists. They, every act of, the, uh, of, of both the classes, by the way, is in trying to get a certain share uh, of the overall uh, you know, GDP in the economy. Profit inflation essentially constitutes of a process where the adjustment is taking place of um, uh, a change, a macroeconomic change that takes place, whether it is about increase in investment in the economy or it is increased in, let's say, government expenditure. The adjustment of that being forced on the workers through a shift to the capitalists is essentially what profit inflation represents that adjustment I, I don't know if I'm making sense uh, in on, on, on this other than what I've already said no it's clear I, I, <laughs> you're doing great <laughs> I really appreciate the the answers and the clarification I I had made a note uh because I had spoken with a few of our uh fellow cl- my few of my classmates who are in your lectures at ideas and I asked them advice on how I should approach this interview and one of the things that many people highlighted was to, if you ever got into a jargony uh, position or, uh, or you're using too many uh, economic terms that uh, regular people, because I think a lot of these terms do obfuscate uh, the realities, uh, like I highlighted in a previous uh, question. So uh, I didn't have to do that at all. Uh, I felt like you did it yourself uh, a lot. So I appreciate that. And yeah, uh, on I, I'm done with inflation and uh and everything i think the only uh question i want to end always on a on a hopeful note uh because what we're talking about is uh heavy a big part of my lecture that is attached to this is about the bengal famine which a lot of uh u.s listeners probably are unfamiliar with or not familiar with Keynes's role in that so uh to end this pretty heavy discussion on real world issues i love to just ask you personally politically uh, what is exciting to you right now? What is inspiring you right now? What is uh, what is what is in front of you that uh, is providing a, a fire fighting spirit? I would say the only thing that uh, seems inspiring currently it is the uh, the young generation trying to fight for uh, uh, a world where there is there is equality that where where climate becomes a central issue uh, in discussion, in negotiations within and across countries. I think that is one movement which holds a lot of hope uh, for me because it, it does two things at the same time. One is in the immediate. It's posing a question which is an existential question uh, uh, for uh, for this planet, uh, but also for humankind. Uh and it also, in the process, uh, uh, perhaps visualizes a world where we may not be driven uh, by this constant urge to accumulate uh, and to, uh, you know, to to consume, to to be obsessed with uh, what we eat, what how we look, uh, so on and so forth. So, a world which is different. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that there is a visualizing visualization of that alternative world, 
but this has uh, the the seeds uh, to do thinking about uh, uh, a world which is different from what we live in and by um, by forefronting it uh, with uh, on on the issue of climate it it would uh, you know put people who are reading on this issue uh, or are aware of this to think about a system outside of capitalism i mean uh, that is one serious hope that i have uh, but it's slightly long term so to speak uh, uh, because it's going to take time uh, in the immediate um, i actually unfortunately i'm not very hopeful because the rise of the right across the world seems to not be a temporary phenomenon um, i think that this is something which is happening as a crisis in my opinion both to the neoliberal model and to the keynesian model uh, i think this is this is a response to both of them so in uh, uh, and, and 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 the right wing in that sense is um, uh, is is taking has taken this as an opportunity across countries of presenting a critique of both these models and using it to their advantage uh that is a very very difficult uh fight to fight but i hope uh, we would be fighting that too and uh, with success uh, at least history will tell us that uh, the progressive forces triumphed in the end thank you ravi uh yeah i actually did have one more question i forgot to write down that was in my head that i'm going to ask you as a bonus question in our discussion uh in the interview that I listened to of yours on YouTube, you spoke about uh, the question was about your uh, proudest moment as uh, at JNU student president. And you spoke about the anti-war protests uh, in 2002 and 2003. And so today, I think it's today or maybe it's yesterday, uh, was the 20th uh, anniversary of, of the beginning of the Iraq war, uh, one of the largest tragedies uh, and atrocities in our modern day. And so speaking uh, to your student, your experience as a student organizer in those moments and uh, why that was a memory that came to you in this interview that you did a few years ago and why it still uh, is with you today. I mean, that was the most naked form of imperialism uh, that, that, that uh, I mean, a lot has been written on it, so I don't need to elaborate on that. But as a student activist, uh, it, 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 it was I mean, there was no pretext of all the excuses given for that war, weapons of mass destruction, all of that had fallen flat. Uh, we all knew why it was being done, and that was to control oil. Uh, that is um, uh, a motive which unfortunately continues uh, even today. Uh, and uh, so the students in, in JNU got off organized around uh, that movement and our slogan at that point uh, in time was no to war, uh, no to terror uh, because uh, we thought it is important to distinguish uh, between uh, so so the opposition had to be against uh, the, uh, the, the uh, bringing down of the Twin Towers as well as uh, the attack that uh, followed uh, because it's important to to to, to uh, distinguish a position 
uh, which can be treated as okay if you're against uh, let's say war then you're essentially defending uh, the other side which is not what uh, uh, the position was in today's context if you were to follow it up then you would have to actually take a similar position uh, on the ukraine war as well uh, and that is a position which i hold i would uh, uh, say that any war uh, whether it is led uh, by the united states or it is led uh, let's say by uh, the other camp uh, which in this case is russia and that is not left by any stretch of imagination i mean putin uh, by no stretch of imagination is either a communist or a socialist uh, and 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 that war uh, needs to be condemned uh, as well where you see that this is an aggression by the russians using whatever may be the pretext in this case you Ukraine is at the center of this proxy war between uh, the NATO forces and and Russia, and we should call that exactly as what it is, uh, uh, which is uh, an act of aggression, and it should be condemned in as many words as uh, one condemned the war on Iraq. Thank you. Really appreciated that. And yeah, it's a. Uh, I think it's really interesting in the context of the U.S. and how the public feels about the Iraq war. Uh, at the time, huge approval ratings, most polling showed that uh, going into 2008, uh, there's a there's a electoral politics joke that the only politician in the U.S. that has suffered consequences from the Iraq war is Hillary Clinton, uh, who in the 2008 primary, that was a key issue against her because Obama was not uh, elected yet at the time of the Iraq war. So he wasn't for it technically. Uh, we don't know what his stance would have been if he was there, but he used it as an issue while running uh, and famously pivoted uh, his positions from the electoral trail to when he was in office. Yeah, it's really interesting because everyone sort of accepts that they were lied to and tricked and everything, and then they don't think past that <laughs> or apply it to mean that perhaps we're being... Yeah, because, I mean, like, the context of the U.S., uh, I mean, it, uh, their position on... Uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans on issues of war are not very different. I mean, uh, maybe the degrees may be, uh, may be different, but uh, 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 I mean, Hillary Clinton, the example that you gave, or even for that example, uh, for that matter, Obama, uh, it's not as if that you suddenly have as a Democratic president uh, a progressive side of the U.S. which emerges for the rest of the world. Uh, domestically, yes, it may be a progressive transition, but for the rest of the world, it's uh, U.S. imperialism. I mean, I don't think the uh, change in the colors from red to blue uh, really make a difference, so much difference for the world outside. Yeah, that's something that I, I've spoken a lot about uh, in organizing across the U.S. Um, a lot of people praise bipartisanship, but bipartisanship tends to be the worst things. Um, it tends to be increasing military budgets, police budgets, uh, cutting public funding. Uh, and yeah, just so it's uh, it's definitely something that uh, needs to be talked about. The connection to imperialism is really important. How to be an anti-imperialist uh, wherever you're at is important. And that's really why I wanted to ask you about your time as a student organizer. This can be cut from the interview if you don't want in the interview. But I just wanted to ask you personally, too, because uh, Anuj uh, sent me a clip of you leading a chant recently at JNU. 
And so I was curious if you're still involved in in rallying uh, student support or uh, in in supporting student organizations. And I know you spoke about that is that is completely not completely a teachers uh, uh, initiative, and uh, this was being done by the JNU Teachers Association. Uh, and uh, I mean, uh, if students can give slogans, so can the teachers across the world. They do so. Well, yeah, it was it was a part of that. I am not involved with, nor do I want to be. Nor is it my place uh, to be involved with student politics. Uh, I am not a student anymore. Uh, but yes, I have been involved in teachers' politics. I was part of the last JNU Teachers Association. So what you saw as the slogans were actually slogans from the JNU TA. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I, I, yeah, it was great to have you. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time and offering your expertise, um, giving you all the flowers. I know you're incredibly humble, but you are a genius, and I really appreciate your work uh, and insight. So thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. It was nice talking to you. Hopefully, this will. Ha- I mean, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know what uh, may have uh, gotten across, but I, it could have been fun. Perhaps I should have thought about the answers uh, more. Uh, no, you gave. They were great answers. Uh, you gave great answers, and uh, really, what I really hope from me sharing uh, my presentation and just this dialogue with you is that more people uh, look into your work and look into Prabhupadniak's work uh, because a U.S. audience may not be familiar with JNU or. Uh, the department that you come from. So I think if I can just open the door to uh, people looking into your scholarship, uh, that 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 did its job. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot. For the changes, my family is the foliage, the branches for the nameless. My roots as deep as holiest. I console the mothers who saw the streets as fathers to raise a wild view who ended up amongst the scholars. Yeah, that's why I'm praying for our daughters, uh, so they can lead us through these waters. 'Cause when mama's proud, she's the grace that we charter. Ambition is akin to intuition. Saturdays with your mind on empty, spirit on extra, body on me. Won't buy what the soul can't see. Won't touch what the heart can't read. Waiting for a cold case of basics. They just wanna see if we'll make it. Same answers, new faces, circles round these places. Plexiglass and styrofoam. You want it more than a model home.